Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 312 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Right Now Media and the High Impact Leader. And I got a special ask, Carrie, for you. And my guest, I'm so pumped for this. We did a flip the mic for his new podcast. Jordan Rayner is my guest. He is an author, he is a serial entrepreneur. And he has done some incredible things with his life. I'll introduce him a little more fully before we jump into the interview. Uh, But I'm so glad you guys have joined us. It is December 31st. Happy New Year's, everybody. I am pumped for 2020. I think it's going to be our best year on the podcast ever. And we have a killer guest lineup for uh, the first quarter of 2020. Some great business leaders, great church leaders. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it's fun to actually be five years into this and to have the dialogue just deepen, it seems, with every year. So if you're out there and uh, you've enjoyed this podcast in 2019, could you let me know? I've actually on my blog by this point got the top 10 episodes of 2019 up there for you if you need a quick reference. We're going to be working hard on bringing you uh, more excerpts of this content in 2020. And also, we're going to be creative in thinking of ways that we can repackage it and make it even more accessible to you. I also want to say thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for getting this on social. If this episode helps you, which I know it will, would you tell your friends about it? Forward the email. I send an email to 55,000 leaders. Whenever we release a new podcast, you can join that for free and or just share it on social. Anyway, guys, uh, so grateful for you. And uh, what are you doing for your media needs? How are you going to develop and train the leaders around you next year? Whether you're a church or a business leader, there's a powerful tool to help people in your company or in your church. So whether you're a business leader or church leader, there is a powerful tool developed by Right Now Media that can help you with leadership training, Bible studies, personal care resources. More than 20,000 businesses, churches, and schools already subscribe to Right Now Media's streaming platform. And that gives everyone in your organization and business access to tens of thousands of inspirational videos anytime, anywhere. So content creators like Henry Cloud, Patrick Lencioni, Francis Chan, Ann Voskamp, J.D. Greer, and many more. So everything from mental health, personal finance, marriage, Bible studies, so much more. When your organization subscribes to Right Now Media, everyone gets access to these inspirational videos for free. So how do you get in on that? Well, visit rightnowmedia.org slash carry to get a free trial of Right Now Media today. So rightnowmedia.org forward slash C-A-R-E-Y will get you in. And then uh, how's your time management going in 2019? Like if you had to look back, would you say, man, I was so on top of stuff. I, I got no issues heading into 2020. Or are you thinking, you know, I need to do better with time. And here's one of the challenges with time management. They don't make any more time. Everybody gets 24 equal hours in a day. So the most productive person you know gets the same amount of time you do. That's why I developed the High Impact Leader course. The High Impact Leader course or the program is the system that I have used to manage my time now for over a decade, almost 15 years. And 
I couldn't believe it. I was leading a fraction of what I'm leading today before I had the system. And I worked more hours and I was busy and I was exhausted and it led me to burnout. And on the way out of burnout, I thought I got to live differently. So I started reprioritizing my time, managing my energy, figuring out how to stop getting my priorities hijacked by other people. And in the process, sort of by accident, became far more productive. So now I can write books. I can lead a company. I led at a church. I can develop messages. I can speak all over the world, do this podcast, and still actually have time for my family and for myself and get seven to eight hours of sleep every night. How do you do that? I'd love to show you how to do that in the High Impact Leader. Thousands of leaders have gone through the High Impact Leader. And what have they learned? They've learned how to get their life and leadership back. They tuck their kids into bed at night now rather than, you know, being on their phone, returning phone calls and answering emails at all hours of the night. And they got margin back in their life. And I believe the high impact leader can get you up to a thousand reclaimed hours in 2020. Not sure? Head on over and check out thehighimpactleader.com. The course is available and open right now. And guess what? There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you got nothing to lose. So head on over to thehighimpactleader.com and make 2020 a better year. Get your life and leadership back. Well, uh, Jordan Rayner is a serial entrepreneur who has bought and sold several fast-growing businesses. By the time he turned 30, he's been a Google fellow. He's spoken at South by Southwest. I will be there again this year, guys. Harvard and TEDx, haven't been there. He is also, uh, he talks about what makes for a successful launch, qualities and characteristics that make for great entrepreneurs and why so much of the career advice people give young leaders is wrong. So excited to bring you my conversation with Jordan Rayner. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Carrie. It is great to have you. So you're a serial entrepreneur. I'm yep. always fascinated by serial <laughs> entrepreneurs. By the crazy people? Uh, by the yeah, crazy yeah. people. What is the wiring of a serial entrepreneur? Yeah, so I define the word entrepreneur pretty broadly, right? Yeah. I, I believe an entrepreneur is anyone who takes a risk to create something new for the good of others, right? Oh, okay. So inherent, you, could, you guys can vehemently disagree with that definition, no. but I think that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And inherent in that is one, I think entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs are born risk takers, right? They just have a natural propensity for risk. Uh, secondly, they are creative. They create new things uh, and then they ship them. Entrepreneurs don't keep their creations in their garage. They right. ship them, they sell them, they share them uh, with the world. And I think, you know, I see this in you, right? I, I, I think entrepreneurs also have kind of this, I, I don't even know what to call it, but this this like, why not me quality about yeah, them, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. they see something, they see an idea in the world and they just think, yeah, like I can solve that. Even if I don't know what the path is, even if I don't know how to get from A to Z, I can figure it out. So a confidence, not an arrogance, right? But a confidence that they could figure it out and that they're just as qualified as anybody else to bring that solution to market. Did you have... Like when you go back over your life and you look at eight-year-old Jordan yeah. or 12-year-old Jordan, were you already like trying to create new things? Are there predictors looking back that you can see clearly now? Were yeah. Quite? So I wouldn't have called myself an entrepreneur until shortly after college. But yeah, right. looking back, 
clearly those traits. So you weren't selling lemonade at your the end of your parents' No, Friday? so that's the thing. That's the thing. I was, right? But oh. I never would have thought of myself as that. I don't know why, right? But uh, I set up a baseball card shop in my room at my parents' house when I was <laughs> nine years old. It was the worst business ever. Uh, our customer acquisition strategy was like, Asking my parents to have people over to the house for dinner, right? So oh, then you go and try, yeah, to, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, try to go sell them, right? Uh, but yeah, I was always very entrepreneurial. But actually, I had a I had a teacher in high school, an American government teacher, that really instilled that like "why not me" quality in me. I was a freshman in high school, yeah, and I saw some things wrong in the high school from my perspective that I wanted to change. And this guy just convinced me to run for student body president as a (laughs) freshman, which was dumb and like no one ever did, right? But I was like, yeah, like I could do that. I could win and we almost won. Uh, We didn't win. Uh, But yeah, that that, that quality was instilled in me at a very young age. You say uh, saw something wrong. Is that an inherent quality in entrepreneurship? I, you see a problem. Like, it's like, oh, here's what's wrong. I think most of the time it's not seeing problems, but seeing opportunities, mm. right? Seeing gaps in the market. Like, I think entrepreneurs, um, yeah, just inherently don't define things as problems, even if they are. They're an You're opportunity right. for the, change. Because the cynic and the critic, uh, here's what's wrong with the world. This is, you know, I always laugh at people. I don't really follow sports, but, you know, it's like everything that's wrong with the Dallas Cowboys or, or with the Boston Celtics. It's like, you've never played a game of basketball right. in your life. Right. How do you even know? Right. But you're right. Uh, entrepreneurs always see it as an opportunity. Yeah. And so maybe that's a better characterization of me in high school. Yeah. It's, it's always seeing the gap and having a vision for what can happen and what it would mean to fill that gap, what it would mean for the world and whoever you're serving uh, if you're able to bring that solution to bear. So give us a quick bio then. Yeah. Because you're a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. You graduated in 2008. Yeah, I'm right? I'm younger. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. 2008. Yeah, so okay. I've been doing this for 11 years or so. Yeah. Okay. So, what are some of the businesses you've launched? Yeah. So, I'll talk about one of my more recent experiences. So, I'll skip the first, you know, seven and a half years of the story. Sold two companies in the political and civic technology markets, okay. uh, and then uh, my most recent experience. I spent two and a half years as the CEO of a tech startup called Threshold 360 pretty well-funded tech startup down in Tampa, Florida, where I live. And Threshold, we built the world's largest library of interior 360 imagery, right? So if you've gone to Google and looked up a location, you've pulled up an interior 360 photo, it gives you way more information about a hotel or a restaurant or a shop. So you see the whole lobby. See the whole lobby. You can walk around, right? It's just way more informative than a flat two-dimensional photo. This stuff's been around forever. Like 10 years, Google's been supporting this content but nobody's figured out how to do it at scale. We have, we built this content for more than, I think 200,000 locations in 20 countries now, and it built a great business around licensing that content out to the myriad of different organizations that market brick and mortar locations. Uh, So I spent two and a half years as CEO of that venture. I was actually the second CEO. And then uh, in March of this year, I stepped back out of that role uh, took on the role as executive chairman of the board uh, and basically spent the previous 12 months recruiting my replacement. Uh, so kind of a wild, wild ride, two and a half years of CEO uh, and have now been serving on the board and and am more bullish than ever before about the venture now that somebody else is running it day to day. Interesting. Yeah. What? Because um, <laughs> I know you're into content now, right? Yeah, you're yeah. writing books and yeah. you've got your own podcast and the whole deal. 
take us back into that a little bit. So the company, obviously, you led it through some serious and significant growth. Yeah. Why do you think nobody had done that kind of scale for 3D imaging, yeah. 360 imaging before? Yeah, so uh, I, I think it was really tied to our methodology of capture. We just, we just, uh, our founder, I'm not the founder of that mm. venture, our founder just had a really unique idea for how to go out and capture that content. Basically, the secret is just walk in the front door of these places and capture these photos without anyone's permission, which shockingly is perfectly legal. No uh, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Private, private property, you can just walk in. So private property, but open to public foot traffic. Uh, so long as photography is not prohibited, you could do this. You could walk so in So you could do places. a mall, you could do You a... could do a mall. Yeah, some places get a little trickier, like malls for security purposes. Yeah. But so long as photography is accepted, you can walk in the front door of a location, capture those photos, and then we can go license those out to the world. Uh, so it, it just took looking at the problem from a very different <laughs> lens and having a phenomenal amount of capital to be able to go out and do it, right? It's a very, you know. Were you responsible for the funding or part of it? Yeah, for part of it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we raised a bit of venture capital uh, during my tenure as CEO. Yeah. What, are, what are the keys to attracting VC? Because we have a lot of people Man. who are trying to, like, not-for-profits. Yeah trying to get donors, and then we've got some entrepreneurs listening who are trying to attract, uh, whether that's bank funding or VC. W what are some keys to really convincing people that, guys, this is you're not going to lose all your money here, okay? <laughs> well, the well, here's the good news. Uh, good investors know that they're going to lose all their money, or the chances <laughs> are, <laughs> yeah, yeah, are right. very good. They're paying for the chance mm -hmm. to make a lot more money off of that investment, right? So at least professional investors, right? So um, I've raised money from family and friends before. Uh, and then with this most recent venture, Threshold 360, we raised from serious professional uh, investors, right? Yeah. Uh, venture capitalists. And with Threshold, it was a little bit easier because our founder was also the primary investor. Now, we did go raise capital from other people. And so some advice I would give there is uh, sales matters more than anything else. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, if you could show serious traction uh, and that your customers are exceedingly happy, it's the easiest thing in the world to go raise capital to make it grow faster, mm. right? I mean, I mean, sales kind of is the end-all be-all in raising uh, raising money in the financial markets, right? So you already had a little bit of traction. Yeah, we already, well, we already had a little bit of traction. Traction helps, traction helps. Yeah. You don't have to have it, but, uh, but, but it makes everything a lot easier. So yeah, we had some traction behind us, yeah. Right. Yeah. What are some other lessons you picked up in your entrepreneurial Leadership lessons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so many lessons. I'll, I'll think of the one that's most top of mind. So with Threshold, I exited as CEO on March 1st of this year. Uh, and an odd thing happened. So I've stayed very involved in the venture as chairman of the board. I'm at the office roughly once a week. But after I left, you know, I thought this place is going to fall apart. Like, oh, mm. my gosh, like things aren't even though I hired a great CEO as my replacement. Oh, man, the organization's really going to feel the pain of Jordan being at the helm. Nothing happened. In fact, <laughs> in, in, in fact, the organization has done better. Right. And is better uh, positioned strategically for the future. And so the lesson in that for me was um, one, there's always pride. Right. That leaders are, are blind to. Uh, and two, everyone is dispensable. Nobody 
including the guy or the girl at the top is indispensable. And you're always more dispensable than you think you are. Right. Because uh, mm. e- even even as I was exiting, I knew I wouldn't have left if I wasn't confident that the venture w- would do well. Right. Uh, but I still thought, oh, man, there's going to be something that blows up because I'm not here. Uh, but leaving just made me realize, you know what? If the Lord wants to continue to bless this venture, he's going to do it. And he doesn't need Jordan Rayner to do it, right? He'll find the people. He'll put the people in the right seats on the bus to make this thing continue to grow if that's his will. Because ultimately, you know, this is in, uh, I think, First Chronicles that tells us mm. wealth and honor come from God alone for he rules over everything. We don't create wealth, right? The Lord creates wealth through us. Uh, and he doesn't need me specifically to carry out his will in the world. That's interesting. There's so many people listening, and I think of small church pastors. Uh, and I mean, I people said this about my leadership for years. It's like, if you leave, the whole thing will fall apart. Yeah. Well, I've pretty much left, yeah. other than a little bit of teaching. And actually, it's grown, Yeah, which is really interesting. And humbling. And humbling. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. In many ways, it's very successful. You're like, great. And on the other hand, it's like, wow. Like, I, I've said this privately to a number of people around Connexus, but there's not a single person <clears throat> in the last four and a half years who's come up to me and said, you know, I kind of wish you were still running this. Yeah. That, which yeah. is which is good and bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. actually just good. It's good. But it's, it's actually good. just good. It's but, good you know, thing. there's part of you that's like. It's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, it's yeah. a tough pill yeah. to swallow. <laughs> what are some keys to replacing yourself? Why did it not fall apart? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I think one key, and we talked about this on, on my podcast that yeah. we just recorded. You, you, you were talking about this. Um, just this idea of constantly, constantly communicating vision mm-hmm. and where the, the venture is headed. So I think that was one of the things I did really well as CEO, right? We, I was just constantly beating the drum, getting crystal clear on this is where we're headed. This is the strategy. This is how we're going to get there. And when I passed the baton, uh, everyone was very clear that that strategy was largely staying in place, right? right. I think the second key was um, finding somebody with a different skill set that was more qualified for the next chapter in the venture story, right? So uh, the guy I hired to replace me just had a different skill set. He had, he had experience at really large companies like Microsoft, and Nokia, uh, and he knew how to build bigger teams at, at greater right. scale. And that was really helpful. And I think the third thing was, and I don't know how this translates to the pastoral world. Maybe you could translate it for some of your listeners, but um, bringing my replacement in before I left, I think was really, really helpful. Yeah. So we hired him in as our chief product officer. Uh, and it wasn't that much time. Uh, he, he got hired on full-time as chief product officer in October and then I left in uh, March. So six so months, five six months. Six months, yeah. right. But yeah. that was enough, given the size of the team, we were at, I don't know, call it 30, 40 people at that time. That was enough time to build trust with the team where they were convinced that this was the guy to lead the venture uh, moving forward. And yeah, and then just having a hard date saying, I mean, we didn't we didn't tell the full team until the day I was leaving. We oh, told them wow. on a Friday, on March 1st, hey guys, this is what's happening. Here's your new leader. You already know him See you later. Uh, I'll see you next week. I'll be here. I'll still be around. I'm still going to be a, a familiar face within the venture, and I'm still going to have my pulse on the business very closely because I still have a, a vested interest in its success. But I think making that really quick kind of rip the Band-Aid off, this is what's happening. You now have a new leader. I think that was actually 
really helpful. It was risky, but it, but it worked for us. Do you find in your experience looking at your own story, but also at other leaders, that often the person who launches things doesn't have the skill set to lead things long term? It's almost always yeah. the case. So Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn. That's who I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Reid's yeah. written a lot about this, mm-hmm. right? And he's pretty convinced of, of that hypothesis that typically the founding CEO is is not the right person uh, to lead to like really- Because Silicon scale. Valley is littered with startups yeah. that either failed because they couldn't get uh, a leader with the management skills in, or they had to bring a co-founder along or yeah. someone else along. Yeah, yeah. So I think that my- my one thing, kind of in the vernacular of, of, of my new book, Master of One, is entrepreneurship and more specifically, uh, really starting, uh, identifying gaps in markets, mm-hmm. bringing products to market to meet those needs, and then setting up systems, and that can include people, that right. can ensure that those products thrive over time without my direct involvement. That's I, I'm very good at going from zero to one. I'm not the guy to manage from the transition from one to 1.1 and 1.2. That's just not. How did you learn that about yourself? Through a lot of trial and (laughs) error, right? So uh, through a lot of experimentation. So Mm. uh, in Master of One, I talk a lot about um, how in order to find your one thing vocationally, this work that God has really created you to do it requires that you experiment widely. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I did that, right? So I've always been an entrepreneur, but but in varying stages. So for example, uh, my first company, I sold to a company in Washington, D.C. It was a larger company. And I went there to go manage a team, right? I managed, we grew up from, I don't know, seven people to about 20 people. When I left, I was running basically the whole company of 20 people along with uh, one other guy. And I just didn't love doing that. Like even mm-hmm. a team at that size, I was just like, yeah, the business had been around for a while. It had been, you know, it was five years old. We were making, we were growing. We were growing, you know, 20% a year or something like that. But that wasn't interesting to me. Like, I love the phase where you're growing, you know, 50% a quarter, right? That, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the type that's the type of growth that I really like to be a part of. And that I think my skill set is uh, is really well aligned with. What are some keys to hyper growth like that? When, when you're launching something? Because we have a lot of launchers, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of young leaders listening. How have you found traction in those ventures? Yeah, so first you got to be sitting at a big enough market to support that type of growth, mm-hmm. right? So I think yeah. um, picking the right table to sit at, to use a poker analogy, I'm not a poker player, but I think yeah. this is a really good analogy, but like picking the right table to play at is probably the most important decision you have to make, right? So making sure that, yeah, the market's large enough, right? There's not a huge market for underwater basket weaving, right? right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Threshold 360, we're sitting in the location data market, which is enormous. I mean, Apple and Google are spending billions of dollars to compete with each other to own maps, this thing that we use every single day of our lives, right? So um, I think picking the right market. And secondly, and I've made this mistake uh, in not doing this before, but I think it's really critical that before, before you focus on pouring more fuel on the fire and really growing whatever it is you want to grow, you make sure your current customers are wildly happy, uh, right? They okay. are not just customers. They are raving fans of you, of the product and the brand. The cheapest way 
to acquire more happy customers is doubling down and making sure your existing customers are exceedingly happy of creating super fans that'll do a lot of the work for you. I'm glad you mentioned that because we've been talking about that even with podcast listeners or readers or, you know, the, the, I've got a, a new uh, CFO in the company. Yeah. And he's like, we treat all the customers alike. And he's like, that's a mistake. There are people who will listen to every episode as opposed to the person who listens to one episode. There's people who bought all your books. There's people who have bought all your courses. And we've got to start paying more attention to them. So we're turning our eyes that way. Uh, comments on that? Yeah, oh my goodness. I could not agree more, right? Uh -huh, I, I think, uh -huh. uh, so I spend, uh, over the last few weeks, so we're, we're launching Master of One on January 21st, right? So we're, we're releasing this, I think, on, on New Year's Eve. So for the last few months, almost every night, uh, while I'm waiting to feed our newborn mm -hmm. at, at 10 p.m. and my wife has gone to bed, I'm writing thank you notes. I'm I'm doing things that don't scale for the people that matter most to my business, right? So for oh, me right now, it's my launch team for my book. The, my launch team is so crazy engaged around this book. And I'm taking time every night to either record a short video to send to them personalized. Nothing scalable right. about it. Saying, hey, Carrie, thanks so much for being on the launch team. I saw your Instagram post. My team showed it to me. Thank you so much for posting about the book or writing them a handwritten thank you note. Uh, those are the people that matter most. Right? So uh, you, you said that. I want you to yeah. just restate that. Doing things that don't scale yeah. for your most committed inner core. Absolutely. I mean, anyone will tell you in any business, right? The founder or in our business being personality yeah, creating yeah. content. Our time's the most valuable, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I hate yeah. it when people say it. But like, that's true. But like, you know, I'm fine spending an hour every night writing thank you notes because I know that that isn't that doesn't make economic sense today, right? Mm. But I know that if those people feel truly valued, if I know that they live in Ohio, right, and that mm -hmm. they've got three kids, and at some point that doesn't scale, but if I take the time to learn those things and say just say thank you, it's very very simple. Those fans will be even bigger raving fans forever for a decade, right? Yes. It's been it's been mind blowing to me having these people take the time to reply back. Back, I've never. No, I've been on five launch teams. I've never had an author personally thank me for anything that I've done. And I, I don't do that for everybody on the launch team because not everyone on the launch team is, is the fully same engaged, yeah, no, right? That's right? They're not all created equal. But the ones who are, man, you got to double down. You got to know who those people are, understand what's common amongst all of them, and continue to refine the product offering to meet their needs. See, one of the pushbacks that you'd get to this in church world or, yeah. uh, and I'm sure in other businesses as well, yeah. it's like, well, that's not fair. Don't you have to treat everybody the same? Why? <laughs> All right, let's <laughs> I go mean, there. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. In the church world, I mean, maybe I can get that, right? But like, I don't know. The 80-20 you know, okay. principle is a law of the universe. Yes, it the is. The fact is that there is a very small number of people in the world that are driving my business right now, mm -hmm. that are the ones out there telling their friends about the book. Why am I gonna waste time talking to the one, two, three star subscribers on my email list who didn't buy the last book, who right. aren't gonna buy this one? Like that, that just doesn't make sense. Well, and in the same way, even in a volunteer organization and not for profit, are you really gonna treat the non-volunteers the same way you treat the volunteers or the volunteer who serves you know, 10 hours a week, as opposed to the person who serves one hour a month. Like, as soon as you start to think about that for more than two seconds, it falls apart. 
But the problem is most of us don't think about it for more than two seconds. Yeah, and I don't think it's manipulative. No. Right? I think you gotta be careful there. It's just the it's just the means of saying thank you to the people that are most impactful to you in your business. I think that's mm. just being a good person, right? Yeah, like yeah, taking yeah, the yeah, time yeah. to recognize and and uh, and appreciate people for for what they're doing. What are some so we talked about some success triggers yeah. in launches and so on, which has been good. What are some common ditches? Just some things that you're like, oh yeah, I see people make this mistake when they're launching again and again. Yeah, um, I think, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half into my tenure as CEO of Threshold, uh, one of our investors came to me and were like, hey, we think you're doing a terrific job. We wanna understand like what makes you tick. Like, What are some of the keystone habits that we should be looking for in other founders? I was very honest, and I said, you know what? There's one thing that I do right about, you know, 70% of the time uh, that I wish I did well 100% of the time that I think is the most important thing for an entrepreneur, anybody who's starting anything, a church, whatever. It's this, taking the time regularly, and I would argue daily, to discern the essential from the noise, Mm. right? So this is what that looked like practically for me when I was CEO of Threshold. You know, when, when you're when you're starting something, a church, a business, a nonprofit, everything looks important. Yep. And the reality is almost nothing is, right? And you're going to be able to see that in six months. You'll look back like, oh yeah, if I looked at that calendar that day, there was really only one thing I did, two things I did on that day that truly mattered. And so for me, when I was CEO, I would take, uh, so I would start my day with a 90 minute block of totally focused deep work on whatever mm-hmm. was most important that day. And then I would take a 30 minute walk around downtown Tampa. I wouldn't look at my phone. I would walk to my favorite coffee shop. And the only thing I would be thinking about is, okay, out of everything competing for my attention today, out of everything that looks important, what once solved is going to make everything else easier? What is mm. truly going to give me the most leverage and really move the needle Today and I would do that daily, right? And then there were other ways to do that with my team on a quarterly basis as we, you know, did strategic planning and established objectives and key results as our goal setting framework. Uh, but yeah, the asking that question the, and failing to ask that question uh, can kill you uh, in the early stages because you just get drowned. You just get distracted by minutia and stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. matter. How, what were some filters to help you sort out what that critical thing might have been? Because obviously it's different every day, but there's probably some patterns. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So when you're in the early stage of a startup, what matters most is um, your people, mm-hmm. right? Keeping your team fully engaged. So if there was ever um, a people issue I had to deal with, whether that was having a difficult conversation with the direct report or more commonly uh, hiring, right? So right. drafting a hiring profile for the next hire, that was what was most important. Uh, another one was sales, right? Mm. So if there was a big deal, right? San Francisco travels, a customer of ours. That was a big deal for us, right? They're using our content for every hotel, every restaurant, every attraction in San Francisco. You know, in in that week that we were trying to close that deal, that was the only thing that mattered, right? And so it was just thinking about, okay, what can I do to get that deal done? And only then will I move on to whatever's next. Hmm. How did you crowd out or how do you crowd out the stuff that's not essential? Because- Theoretically, you've got requests for meetings that you're going to say, you know what, that this is not San Francisco travel. Okay, so yeah. I can't do that meeting. I, I think when you, I, I talk to a lot of leaders, and I mean, I've struggled with this myself. It's like everybody wants a piece of you. Yeah. What have been some keys to you to narrowing that focus 
without ticking everybody off. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> You're gonna get really good at saying no. Uh-huh. Uh, no, so I, I think there's a couple of layers to this question. Um, I'll start with how, how do I stay focused, you know, within within yeah. within the day, right? So. Uh, David Allen, author of Getting Things mm-hmm. Done, probably influenced me more professionally than any book ever, uh, is very fond of saying, you, you can't be comfortable with uh, with what you're not doing until you know what you're not doing, right? Uh, and so you've got to have a trusted system outside of your head that is a central repository for everything you're committed to. Today, tomorrow, five years from now, you've committed only to yourself, whatever, right? you got to have a place for all those things. Uh, and then from there, once you've decided what's important and you're focusing on that work, I think it's really critical that you ruthlessly eliminate any distraction uh, from from your life. So my phone, we were just talking about this on my podcast. Yeah, yeah. My phone's always on Do Not Disturb when here, I'm at here. home and at work. Here, here. Uh, very few people on my favorites list that can reach me while I'm doing deep work. Right. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I try to batch everything whether yeah. it's content creation or even media. Talk about your podcast, because we talked yeah. about that before we started recording. Yeah. Because I asked <laughs> you, so this new podcast that you're doing, which is called, for our listeners. Yeah, The Call called? to Mastery with the Jordan The Call Rainer. to Mastery yep. with Jordan Rayner. Um, you blew me away with how you put it together. <laughs> so tell us. What do you do? Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of mega batching. I yeah. know Cal Newport talks a lot about this. Uh, so mega batching is exactly what it sounds like. You take one thing that you gotta do a bunch of and you just do it all at once. So when we launched the call to mastery, uh yeah, we recorded I think it was 28 episodes in one <laughs> in Which one as week. a podcaster, I will tell you feels insane. It I'll tell you here here's what the insane part was. It wasn't actually doing the interviews, it was the prep for my team. It yeah. crushed them. Did you use the same questions for every interview? No. We use different Whoa, questions. Yeah, yeah, okay, because yeah. I don't. I don't use the same questions. No, no, we didn't. We we had a starter template, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, they were they were highly customized. It was wow. a little crazy. That was a little much. So, little but much. you did twenty eight in a week. We did twenty eight in a week and just knocked them out back to back. And actually, this is a good example of yeah. This is the the podcast was the first product I've launched that didn't start with really, really small bets to validate the idea, right? So my advice to founders is don't build the whole iPhone app that you think you want to build. Build a prototype. Build, I don't know, a mock-up in PowerPoint that you could show Mm. people and get feedback on before you waste time and money. Test the market. It's the lean startup methodology that I'm a huge disciple of, right? With the podcast, we didn't do that. Uh, And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we didn't because we already had built an audience, right? Mm-hmm. We had an email list of 100,000 people who get my weekly faith and work devotional. 49% told us that they would subscribe to the podcast when we launched it. So we knew that there was an audience for this thing there. So, so it had, had to be great. kind of tested it. We had kind of tested yeah, it. Yeah, We had survey tested it, but not actually tested it. I did the same thing. I didn't have yeah. 50,000 people yeah. who were interested. I yeah. had 419. That's a lot. Thank you to every one of you, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> All 419 are still listening, right? Yeah, I think so. I hear from them on a regular basis. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, but I'm a big fan. Yeah. I don't know how we got to mega batching, but I'm a big fan of this concept. Yeah, yeah. but those are those are some ideas. Now, yeah. you've also spoken at Harvard, South by Southwest, TEDx. You've been a Google Fellow, etc. So you're well acquainted with the world of young leaders. Those, yeah. those primarily they're all young emerging leaders. What are some of the common themes you've seen? The issues that young leaders are struggling with. And South by Southwest is fun, isn't it? Uh, South by is an amazing event. I'm I mean, back Austin, again in 2020, which uh, is awesome. amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, Austin's one of my favorite cities in the world. It so, is. It's uh, fantastic. I love it. Yeah, so I think the most common struggle 
I see young leaders dealing with, and frankly, it's not just young leaders, is desperately trying to find happiness in their work, mm. right? And failing at that over and over and over again. And here's my encouragement to any young uh, leader listening. It's not your fault that you're yeah. not finding happiness. You have been sold a lie uh, your entire career. I, I write about this extensively in my new book, Master of One. In a way, this topic is kind of what the book is all about. So here, here's what I mean. Uh, I, I'm a millennial. I grew up with very well-intentioned parents mm. telling me to follow my passions, yeah. follow my dreams, and above all else professionally, do whatever makes me happy. And it turns out that's really, really, really bad advice, right? <laughs> uh, for, for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So there's a professor at Yale named Amy Resineski who has spent her entire career trying to figure out what leads people to describe their work as a calling, as opposed to a job or a career. Mm -hmm. She studied it with doctors, with clerical workers, with computer programmers, and time and time again, the number one predictor as to whether or not somebody will see their work as a calling is not whether or not they were passionate about the work before they started it. It was the number of years they have spent getting good at that craft. Whoa. So in other words, passion follows mastery, not the other <laughs> way around, right? We, we get to love what we do by getting really, really good at it, right? And so that's the first reason why this is really bad advice, right? This follow your passions, you know, do whatever mm. makes you happy advice. It doesn't work. And secondly, I think the second reason is closely related to the first. It doesn't work because it's out of line with Jesus's teachings. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell me to do whatever makes me happy? In fact, I would argue the whole of scripture says the opposite. It right. says- It's like, hey, your passions are probably gonna kill you. Yeah, that's exactly what, well, well, and also that the, the purpose of life, the purpose of work is to serve others before I serve myself. Right. It's to focus on others' happiness before I focus on my own. And so as I argue in Master of One, we get to love what we do by getting really good at it. It is when we become masterful at a craft and serve others well and make others happy by being really gifted at what we do that we also find this deep sense of vocational happiness and joy, right? Hmm. Uh, and sharing God's pleasure. Eric Liddell, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, talk about that in Chariots of Fire. I feel God's pleasure. I think that's the picture. I think we feel God's pleasure when we do the work that we were created to do, we do it masterfully well, primarily in service of the glory of God and the good of others, rather than our own happiness. Hmm. Do you think that this is in part what you're describing behind the angst that I'm running into? In fact, recently I stopped asking 20 to 25-year-olds or even 18 to 25-year-olds, what do you want to do? Hmm. Uh, or what's your major? Because I just run into, it's a fear-inducing question these days. Hmm. People are like, I have no idea what I want to do. I don't know what my major is supposed to be. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Uh, because there's a million options out there, right? Like you look at young leaders, it's like, you can be anything. And you attack that in your book. So can you talk a little bit more about the paralysis that so many young leaders feel? I was just giving a speech uh, to a group of uh, about 1,000 university students out in California. And it was the first time I delivered this, you know, don't do what makes you happy. Don't follow your passions, right. Kino. And I was a little scared. I was like, oh my uh -huh. goodness, these kids are going to come up to me and, and be furious about this. I was blown away by how relieved 
they were. That was the theme that kept coming up. So many of these kids came up and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I felt overwhelmed because one, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Yeah. I don't know yet what work is going to make me happy. And also, it, I, think it, I think it gives you freedom to just choose anything, right? To just make a choice. You know, I think now more than ever before, we have more options than we've ever had before of what to do vocationally. It mm-hmm. is true that now more than ever, you can choose to do pretty much anything you want to do uh, with your career, Right. Uh, And that leads to a paralyzing number of options that makes us afraid to make a choice, right? But as I argue in the book, you know, this idea that passion follows mastery uh, kind of frees you. Because now I can say, you know, I'm going to pick anything. I'm just going to try something and experiment widely in my career to find the thing, not that's going to bring me the most immediate satisfaction today, but that I'm gifted at and that can develop into true mastery and a sense of calling long term. You talk about apprenticeship in the book, do you not? Yeah. Yeah. What, how, how does apprenticeship relate to joy and passion and mastery? Yeah. So in the book, I outline three keys to mastering anything vocationally. So we, we had a pretty big research team for this book. Uh, so we did a ton of research of academic literature, of business literature, and then we did a lot of interviews uh, with Christ followers who are world-class masters at what they do. So NFL Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy. We talked uh, to Douglas Gresham, who's the producer of the Narnia films. We talked to Scott Harrison at Charity Water, uh, Emily Lay, lots of great leaders. And there were three keys to mastery that kept coming up over and over again. Number one was purposeful practice. Uh, Number two was discipline over time. And number three was apprenticeships. Which okay. sounds like this. Those? Yeah, so so apprenticeships is kind of this ancient term, right? We don't really hear this term very much anymore, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but it's still very much alive and well today. And apprenticeship essentially is just humbly submitting yourself to the knowledge and the wisdom of somebody who's more masterful than mm. you at your craft, right? And that can look uh, like a lot of different things. It can look like a traditional apprenticeship where you go and work for somebody in an internship or in a full-time job to learn a craft. Or... It can look like virtual mentorships, right? right? Online coaching. It can look like YouTube videos. But the point is recognizing that once you've found something that you want to pursue and experiment with or pursue mastery of over a long period of time, you don't know everything, right? right? And there are people out there whose expertise and knowledge is very, very real, right? So it's your job to go seek them out, uh, very, very diligently seek them out and submit to their knowledge and their strengths become your strengths, right? That's the beauty of apprenticeship. Hmm. So apprenticeship, what does that look like? Yeah. In the world? Like my dad was in tool and mold, yeah. right? So they literally had apprenticeship. Yeah. It's like, you have to be an apprentice and you do that for two or three years. You do some in-class academics, you come work in the shop. And then at some marker, I never went through the apprenticeship. Yeah. I was supposed to, but I didn't. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, you become a certified, a journeyman mm. is what they used to call it. I yeah. don't know if they still do, but a tool and mold maker. And, uh, you know, so if you're in those blue collar trades, that's still a thing. But how do you how do you apprentice in an office? How do yeah. you apprentice in what we do? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I would argue there's two types of apprenticeship, right? Yeah. What you just described is a direct apprenticeship. You have a personal relationship with somebody who is a master of a trade. And I I think that could be true in blue collar or white collar work. I think- Well, articles of clerkship, my year in law. There you go. I was apprenticing under other lawyers 
um, prior to writing the bar admission course and getting called, uh, like admitted to the bar. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I think direct apprenticeship can look like uh, traditional full-time employment, an internship, something like that. For me, when I was CEO of Threshold 360, my direct apprenticeship was to my board. I had a board of mm. exceptional entrepreneurs, now turned investors, who are incredible at their crafts, right? And they got to know me personally. They yeah. knew my specific weaknesses, the things I needed to develop, and they could coach me along that path. There's another form of apprenticeship, what I call an indirect apprenticeship, uh, which still requires that you humbly submit yourself to the knowledge of others, but you do it outside of that personal relationship, right? So this would be somebody taking your high-impact leader course, Correct. right? Yeah, sure. So a great tool for leaders, that's an indirect apprenticeship. You're teaching them, but you're not getting to know those people's you know, specific pain points, right? Maybe they could do that in some, some other fashion, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but that's what an indirect apprenticeship looks like, right? It's online courses, it's going on YouTube and learning how to do this. But here's my advice if you're seeking out an indirect apprenticeship. There's so many people teaching on whatever topic it is that mm -hmm. you want to get great at. Find who you're going to – decide early on who you're going to trust and ignore everybody else, right? Oh, wow, yeah. Double down. you can dabble, right? You can dabble. Find the person that shares your values, that, that you just really resonate with, and go all in on everything they have to say, largely ignoring everybody else. But I'll say this. If given the choice between a direct apprenticeship and an indirect apprenticeship, take the direct route every single time, yeah. right? So all of the masters profiled a master of one had some form of apprenticeship and almost all of them had a direct apprenticeship. So David Bodaya, yeah. Olympic, Olympic gold medalist diver, he had a coach, right? Uh, Tony Dungy had apprenticeships in coaching, right? Fred Rogers had an apprenticeship, right, that he submitted to in, in early childhood education, right. right? So that direct apprenticeship is really, really critical. Scott Harrison's been on the show before. Yeah. I'm just curious, what would Scott say his apprenticeship was? So Scott is actually one of the stories I use to illustrate the value of direct apprenticeships over indirect apprenticeships. So if you guys don't know who Scott Harrison is, Scott Harrison's the CEO and founder of Charity Water that's raised more- Massively yeah. Uh, massively successful. They've raised more money for clean water projects overseas than anybody else. And in the book, I tell the story of how Scott, when he was starting Charity Water, he had an indirect apprenticeship with- the nonprofit kit for dummies, right? <laughs> <laughs> the literally, literally bought the dummies book. I did not know bought, that yeah, part of his story. Literally bought yeah. the dummies book for yeah. nonprofits. But over time, as he matured as a leader, he recognized that he really needed somebody getting to know his specific strengths and weaknesses. So he, so he uh, brought on a coach, uh, a mentor, this guy named Ross Garber. Uh, who is a phenomenally successful founder. And Ross was brutal with Scott, calling him out on stuff and just spotting weaknesses in Scott. And to this day, Scott largely credits uh, Ross for the success of, of Charity Water. So and that is such a common story. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the books on my reading list this Christmas is Trillion Dollar Coach. Yeah. Oh, Bill Campbell? Yeah. So good. Yeah. And that whole idea that he would just wander around Silicon Valley and like, all right, here's what you're doing wrong today. And he was very encouraging about it. So you said there were three. So one yeah. is apprenticeship. Yeah. Walk us through the other two, if you would, Jordan. Yeah, sure. So again, uh, th these are the three keys to mastery that came up in all of our research of academia, business literature of interviews. Uh, so number one, apprenticeships, indirect or direct. Number two, the second key to mastery is purposeful practice, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners 
are familiar with the 10,000-hour rule made right. famous by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, it was actually research conducted by a professor at my alma mater, Florida State University. No way. Yeah, Dr. Anders Ericsson. And Ericsson was the first one to find that uh, it takes roughly 10,000 hours of practicing any vocation in order to, to achieve mastery of it. But what's really important is not just how much people practice their craft, it is how they practice those 10,000 plus hours, right? So okay. it's not just sitting down at the computer and churning out blog posts. It's what Erickson calls purposeful practice, which has four characteristics. Uh, number one is specific goals, right? So let's yeah. say you want to be, let's say you want to be a writer, right? That's yeah. your one thing. I want to be a masterful writer. It's not just enough to say, I want to be a great writer. You have to set a specific goal. Example, uh, I want to sign a publishing deal with one of the five largest publishers in the world. Great. That is a specific goal, right? right. Secondly, you have to be intensely focused when you're sitting down to practice your craft, this deep work that we've been talking about. Uh, third, you have to get rapid feedback on whatever it is you do, mm. right? So if you're blogging, rapid feedback feedback might look like looking at analytics to see which uh, which blog posts are being shared the most. Or, it's always surprising, It's Jordan. always surprising, right? <laughs> yeah, and then the final key of purposeful practice is frequent discomfort, constantly yeah. putting more weight on the bar. So number one, key to mastery, apprenticeships. Number two, purposeful practice. And then finally, discipline over time, right? Mm. So Angela Duckworth, the author of Grit, who I cite a lot in Master of One, talks about, you know, being a promising beginner at something is fun, but being a master is infinitely more gratifying, yeah. right? Because again, passion follows mastery. Again, I'm going to say it a hundred times. We get to love what we do by getting really, really good at it. If you're constantly hopping from one job to the next, and it's not, there's not a through line through it, they're not connected, you're not going to get great at your craft, and you're not going to find that deep satisfaction of vocation for yourself. Discipline over time. Yeah. Talk about that more because I do think that's a massive problem. People, yeah. and there's such a thing as a good pivot yeah. oh, or, yeah. or a redirection <clears throat> or that kind of thing. But I think a lot of people, I mean, I don't know, you might have this research, but I've read in different sources that the average person will have five different careers yeah. over the course of their life now. Maybe yeah. it's more, maybe it's less. But the bottom line is, how do you achieve mastery in something if you keep like, Pivoting every few years. You can't. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly, so, you, exactly. You, you can't. Now, I'll say this. Yeah. There are clearly people who decide to master one thing. And I, I, I we, can, we can talk about this a little bit more later if you want to. But, you know, your one thing might be super specific. It might be mm. a specific job that you're pursuing mastery of for 20 years. Or it might be really broad. My one thing is broad. My one thing is entrepreneurship. Mm. And to become masterful at that, it's actually required that I shift jobs every couple of years either through acquisition or through shutting a venture down, whatever it is. Right. So that might look like a lot of shifts, but it's actually one thing that I'm pursuing mastery of in a very disciplined fashion over a long period of time. Well, and as we talked on yeah. your podcast about me, yeah. you know, that move from radio to law to ministry to podcast to blogging looks totally circuitous, but the thread in all of it is they're all communication. That's exactly Everything right. was communication in there. So uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners love C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually talking with C.S. Lewis's stepson about this topic because I had this concept. Okay, be a jack of all trades. That's fine, right? I'm actually, I'm a jack of all trades. I think I'm a jack mm. of all trades. Maybe that's even too generous to call me a jack of all <laughs> trades. Maybe, maybe I'm an eight of all trades. Uh and a master of one. So don't be, as Christians, if we believe that our work 
is a means of serving the world, of loving mm. neighbor itself. We ought to be sick to our stomachs if people describe us as a master of none. There's yeah. nothing that the world could say that we're doing exceptionally well in service of others. That's crazy. So be a master of one. Anyways, back to Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, in my mind, stood out as kind of the exception to this rule. Like on the surface, Lewis appeared to do a bunch of different stuff. He wrote novels. He wrote nonfiction. He was a radio broadcaster. He taught for 30 years at Oxford. And so I was uh, I was smoking a cigar with Douglas Gresham, his stepson. There's a great backstory here if you want to get it in. But I was smoking a cigar with Douglas yeah, Gresham. I'm, I'm, we're in. His stepson. Ahead, All right. Tell the story. Uh, well, I'll come back to the cigar story. Okay. So smoking a cigar. I was like, Doug, your stepfather looked to be a master of many things. Was he? And he thought about it for a minute. He's like, you know what? Not at all. Jack, his stepfather, what he mm. called his step, stepfather, was a masterful teacher. Mm. Everything he did, he taught. When he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia, he was teaching us about Christ. When he wrote nonfiction, he was teaching. When he taught at Magdalene College uh, and, and did radio broadcasts, he, he, te- he was a teacher. That was his one thing, right? And uh, according to Doug, Jack understood that, right? It was very intentional about honing that craft and the art of teaching people. And so that, for me, was very freeing to realize, oh, yeah, most people's one thing is going to be very broad, but but zeroing in on what that is, understanding what it is, what the work is that God created you to do is so important because mastery matters, because mastery is how we glorify God, love neighbor as self, and, oh, by the way, find happiness in our own careers for ourselves. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because I think about all the things. I was a kid. If I wasn't good at it right away, I would just quit. Yeah. And and that gets very discouraging, right? If you don't master it. On the other hand, writing now for 25, 30 years, communicating for almost 40. No, 30. Yeah, almost 40. It's wow. crazy. Um, you get good with words, better than you were when you were 22. Hmm. I got to hear the story. Smoking a cigar. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so actually this would be a good setup for, uh, yeah, all right. So... My last book, uh-huh. called To Create. Uh, I, so I wrote about C.S. Lewis in Called to Create and in Master of One. So for Called to Create, when it came out, I wanted to do something different for the pre-order campaign. It was my first uh, traditionally published book. And you know you, you know what authors do for pre-order campaigns, right? Uh-huh. You get a discount on the course, whatever. I was like, I want to do something that's totally going to cut through the noise. So I decided to personally pay to send one pre-order of the book and a guest on a trip to Europe. Uh, and they went to the homes of some of the entrepreneurs and culture makers. I, I read that. I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah, that is crazy. So man. they went. So they went to Arthur Guinness's brewery. Whatever. It all culminated in dinner with C.S. Lewis's stepson, this phenomenally interesting, generous person named Douglas Gresham, in London. So we went to the Goring Hotel, which is literally right behind Buckingham Palace. The Queen takes her staff to dinner there every Christmas. Uh, and so we had had dinner, two and a half hours, amazing time. It was me. Doug, a couple of my buddies, and then the winners of the sweepstakes, right? And the winners had left. So it's just me, my two buddies, and Doug sitting in the lobby of the hotel. And he's like, are you guys in a rush to get somewhere? We're like, no, not at all. So he takes us behind the bar, just walks in there like he owns the hotel, right? Douglas Gresham walks in there, pulls open a drawer, opens up a box of cigars. Like, you guys smoke cigars? (laughs) And we're like, we do tonight. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So we ended up just hanging out on the stoop of this hotel, with the last person alive who personally knew C.S. Lewis, who lived with them for 10 years and just smoked cigars and told stories no about Jack way. and told stories about why Susan didn't make it into Narnia. I mean, just crazy. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was amazing. It was the best. I, I, it was top five nights of my life. 
That's incredible. Yeah, any awesome. any trivia about C.S. Lewis that most people wouldn't know? Uh, so there's this great story about when Jack went on a trip with Joy, Doug's mom, and C.S. Lewis's wife for the last few years uh, of their lives. And uh, Jack and Joy went on this trip. They went with some friends. And there was this one couple that was with them that Jack, like, didn't really like. And Jack got along with everybody, right? Okay. C.S. Lewis loved everybody. This this woman was being really <clears throat> mean and really ugly to Joy. And so Jack said something to the effect of, they were walking up a mountain. And Jack and Joy decided to hang back. And Jack said something to the effect of, I hope when she gets up there, she drops dead of a heart attack. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> <laughs> She did. She drops dead of a heart attack. And C.S. Lewis is like, devastated. Uh -oh. Devastated. <laughs> I was like, I never heard that before. It's a great story. It's a great story. Oh, that's funny. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. Anything else you want to share on Masters of One? Like, I'm, okay, give us some practical advice. So we do have a lot of young listeners here. Primary demographic, 25 to 35. Yeah. Uh, in the business field, also in the ministry field. And there's a lot of pivoting going on these days. A lot of movement. Yeah. You say it takes experimentation, yeah. and yet you want to be defining this. Yeah. What um what advice if people are like, okay, what's my next step? Like, just tell me what are some practical things I can do yep. to get a little bit further along on the path to mastery? Yep. Great question. So I'll answer this question in three parts. Sure. <laughs> uh, part one, let me give you a preview of the path to mastery, yeah. right? So from my team's observation, there's basically four steps along the path to mastering anything vocationally. Step one is exploration, right? Step two is choosing one thing vocationally to commit to. Step three is elimination, ruthlessly eliminating mm -hmm. everything else in your life that's distracting you from the work you believe the Father has given you to do. And the final step is mastery. It's not really a step. It's really a lifelong it's process. It's an outcome. It's an outcome, it? yeah. right? Well, well, it's also, it's really not a destination, right? I mean, that, that that's the trick of the path to mastery. It really has no end point. You're always getting more masterful at your craft. So that's number one. Number two, really practical advice. Uh, yes, at some point in your career, in order to do your most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others, I believe, my opinion, you need to pick one thing to master. Yeah. That said, you should also experiment widely first. You can't make the best decision as to what your one thing is going to be, the work you're going to do most exceptionally well, until you try a bunch of different things, right? Mm. So go try a bunch of different things. Go become a jack of all trades, all the while searching for the one thing that is producing fruit beyond what you can imagine. How beyond does that play out in your life? All right, so... Uh, my one thing has always been entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. but it's got a little bit more refined over the last few years in creating content products, creating books, right? So here's how that happened for me. So my last book called To Create just took off in ways that I cannot reasonably explain. And that stood somewhat in contrast to other entrepreneurial endeavors in my past, right? First two companies had some decent acquisitions with, but but the work, always, the results always felt proportional to the amount of work right. that me and my I hustled team, really hard. I hustled really hard showed. and it showed. Yeah. Called to create, we hustled really hard, but the results were so much greater than what the hustle could account for, right? That was like, okay, that's the miracle of divine multiplication. It's the sower and the seed. It's mm -hmm. the seed that Jesus mm -hmm. planted the good soil that reaped 30, 60, 100 fold the crop of the other seeds. That's what you're looking for, right? Here's the last thing I'll say. Uh, 
I mentioned uh, the the trip we gave away to Europe yeah. last year. So uh, I guess we could talk about this now because we're in the middle of the pre-order campaign. We're doing it again, right? Okay. So so for Master of One, go pre-order the book. And if you go to jordanrainer.com to pre-order the book, you're also going to be entered a chance to win a European cruise for two, seven-night cruise uh, on Royal Caribbean. Uh, then you're going to go Barcelona. I'm going to fly over to Barcelona and take you to dinner in Barcelona. And then you're going to go see probably my favorite subject in the entire book, La Sagrada Familia. Are you familiar with this? No. So La Sagrada Familia uh, is the largest church in the world. It was designed by Anthony Gaudi, who's a world-famous architect who did a bunch of different projects early on in his career. And then for the last 12 years of his life, he dedicated himself solely to one project, building a church, La Sagrada Familia, that would quite literally tell the story of the Gospels and proclaim the excellencies of God, as it says in 1 Peter 2.9. So he devoted himself solely to this one project. He was a true master of one. Here's the crazy part. Gaudi died uh, more than 100 years ago. The church has been under construction for more than 135 years. They're still building it. Still going. Still going. It's not going to be completed until 2026. And by the way, it's not because they took a huge break. It's just that massive, that intricate, that masterful that it's going to take 140 years Hmm. to get done. But you can visit it today. I've been there. It's the most spectacular thing I've ever seen on this earth. It's incredible. Uh, So, yeah, so we're going to send you to go see uh, La Sagrada Familia uh, if you pre-order the book and enter to win that sweepstakes. Well, uh, now what am I going to come up with for my book launch? Jordan, that's unbelievable. What a great thing. It's fun. Oh, yeah. And well, I get, it basically gives me an excuse to have dinner with readers. I mean, that's all yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is the most fun thing to do as an author. Well, so. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So if people want to do that, yep. jordanrainer.com. That's it. Mm-hmm. J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Great. So you can go there. And uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have a funny feeling it won't be our last. I I think so, too. Jordan, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that was rich and fascinating, wasn't it? So if you want more like transcripts or show notes, just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 312. We will have everything there for you. And guys, it's almost 2020. Francis Chan is back January 7th, and on the 14th, Louis Giglio, Liz Forkin-Bohannon, John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke, Jenny Allen, Craig Grishel. That just gets us into like the first 40 days. It's going to be a killer lineup. I think you're going to love it. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And do make sure that you check out Right Now Media, rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry. Right now, you get a free trial to Right Now Media if you act by going to rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry. And uh, you can also head on over to thehighimpactleader.com and get your life and leadership back in 2020. That is something I am so passionate about. This is a hill I could die on. It's a method that I've taught thousands of leaders that have helped them get sometimes dozens of hours back a week, sometimes three hours a day. It's crazy. And if you want to have a better year, uh, don't just have high hopes, have a better strategy. The High Impact Leader will get you there. Uh, And if it doesn't, your money back. Uh, Go to thehighimpactleader.com. Well, next week, we are back with Francis Chan. This was a fascinating conversation. Francis is never boring. And he talked about sort of the controversy he, he stirred up in the fall of 2019 
when he said he was going to Asia and kind of people felt he condemned America. So he apologizes for that. He talks about what he meant. And then we have a great conversation about the impact of social media on real people. So uh, here's an excerpt from the next episode. I did this illustration where I had a BB gun uh-huh. and uh, I asked, you know, how many people think I can shoot this little balloon that was like, I don't know, on the other side of the, you know, stage. So it's pretty far. <laughs> and most people raise their hands. And then I go, well, how many people believe to the point where you would hold it in your hand? And there were still a few people that I'm like, who would stick it between their teeth, you know? And this one kid did. And so I had him go up there and I was just going to scare him. But once I had it in the sights, I just pulled the trigger because I thought, <laughs> I'm this. and I hit the balloon and I, my heart's pounding. And, but my point was, who was the true believer in the room? Everyone who raised their hand or the guy that stuck it between his teeth. But meanwhile, I've got attorneys in the room going, you have lost the whole, do you know, you know. So we're kicking off 2020 that way. I am so excited for that. You know, people ask me all the time, Carrie, how do you get everything done? And obviously I've got, you know, the high impact leader that tells you, but uh, Rich Birch, my buddy over at unseminary.com asked me if I would record an episode for him on my morning routine. So for Ask Carrie, because I do get asked this a lot, I am going to play you what is going to play on Rich's podcast about my morning routine. So here is the answer to that question. Carrie, how do you spend the first few hours of your morning? Here's my answer. Hey there, Unseminary listeners. It's Carrie Newhoff. Rich asked me to share a few things about the first hour of my day. So uh, I don't know. It's pretty unglorious, but I think uh, <laughs> I'm happy to do it, Rich. So let me start not with the morning, but with the night before. Uh, one of the things I do is I really try to pay attention to what my day looks like because it varies. I do an awful lot of travel. And so I have to think about, well, what time is my flight? I've tried to actually eliminate a lot of early morning flights because I find it leads to a greater level of fatigue than I'm really comfortable with. Uh, or if it's a writing day, I know I'm going to need a lot of mental clarity. Uh, and uh, maybe it's a meeting day. It's still going to be a bit of an energy drain on me. So I really try to pay attention to that the night before. And I think ahead of time of how much time, like how much sleep I'm going to need to feel good. Uh, a couple of other things that really impact the next day before the morning starts. Uh, this sounds really technical, but you know, Rich, you can always edit this out. Um, the food I eat the night before and when I eat it. So uh, if I eat late, I don't sleep as well. And I track my sleep through my Apple Watch on something called auto sleep. It's just an app. I think it's like $5 or something like that. You can use a variety of free apps. Uh, And I know if I just eat too late or if I have a glass of wine or something like that before bed, um, which I rarely do, but if I do, I'm not going to sleep as well. So um, those are things I really pay attention to. And I am, you know, since I burned out all those years ago, really paying attention to how I manage my energy. Also, I tend not to exercise at night, but if I do, Uh, you know, at nine o'clock at night, go for a bike ride or that kind of thing. I don't get as much deep sleep. And so deep sleep is quality sleep. I try to get at least two hours a night. A good night would be three, you know, an incredible night is four, but about 30% of your sleep should be deep sleep if you're going to have a good day the next day. So that's where it starts the night before. 
And then when I wake up in the morning, uh, I used to set an alarm. I did an interview on my leadership podcast with Larry Osborne where he told me he didn't. I thought, I'm going to experiment with that. So these days, unless I have a pressing deadline, I don't set an alarm and I try to let my body determine when I need to wake up. So typically that tends to be when I would normally wake up with an alarm anyway. Uh, but I am sleeping a little bit later sometimes. A normal day would be up between 5.15 and 5.45. Some days I get up earlier. Some days if I'm really tired or coming back from a, a flight the night before, I might sleep until 6 or 6.30. Then I get up, uh, make a cup of tea. Uh, first thing I do, I don't change, don't shower, head down to my spot, which in the you know place to have a quiet space for my devotional time. In the winter, that's in my office, in the basement of our house, in the summer or any decent weather, that'll be outside on the back porch. We live in a pretty private area. And so lots of trees, birds, grass, gardens, it's beautiful. And then I spend the first minimum 15 minutes, often half hour to an hour, um, just praying, reading the scripture. I use version. I use, uh, what is it? I use the one-year Bible, Nikki Gumbel's plan, read through the Bible every year. I've done that as a discipline for about 20 years. When I'm on the road, it'll vary a little bit. It'll be shorter, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but I try to get through all the scripture passages and say a prayer and then get going with my day. I do that first thing because although it's my best and most productive time, I see that as a tithe or an offering. I want to give that to God. And uh, it sort of sets the course for my day. These days, I've been doing some gratitude journaling. So that's just on my iPad. I just make a little file and I start writing. I actually use the Apple Pencil because I think there's something about writing, not typing. And if it's on my iPad, it's always with me. And it's not one more thing to pack when I'm on the road. So um, another thing I've added to my gratitude journal lately is not just... um, you know, things I'm grateful for, but things that frustrate me. (laughs) It was kind of a variation. One day I was just really frustrated. I said, I got nothing to be thankful for. And then I remembered, be thankful in all things. And actually it's been very therapeutic. So uh, most days it's mostly good, but some days it's like the frustrations go in there too. I'd say I feel a little more grateful than I did seven, eight months ago when I started that. And then sometimes I'll read spiritual reading, um, you know, after I pray. Sometimes uh, I've got a prayer journal that I started keeping recently. I'll go through that. And then uh, sometimes I'll just, you know, sit and think for a little bit. And then I'm off to do some creative work. I've canceled almost all my breakfast meetings so that I can capture that time to create content. And I'll work on a blog post, a book these days, I'm under deadline, or a sermon series, uh, although I'll be preaching less moving forward. So that uh, the idea in those first three or four hours is to work on it, not in it. At some point when I feel like I'm ready for a break, I'll go and grab breakfast, grab a shower. I eat the same thing every morning, so I don't have to think about that. And then I go into another couple hours of work. And by that point, you know, the world wakes up and I've got a meeting at 11 or noon or something like that. But that's a typical morning routine for me and I love it. So I hope that helps. I'd be anxious to see what other people have to say. And that was five minutes, man thought it was two to three. Anyway, (laughs) hope that helps guys. Well, hopefully that was helpful. And there's a lot more at the highimpactleader.com guys, of course. So uh, back in 2020, so excited. Thank you for an amazing 2019. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.